So for the past two weeks, I've deviated from the appointed gospel text. And even though the last two sermons, they haven't followed the lectionary, they have nonetheless followed a theme. The theme for the past few weeks has been this. The church needs to be constantly reminded of the lessons we can so easily forget. In order to keep that theme going, the text I want to use this morning isn't found in today's gospel text either. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew in the 13th chapter. So as I started my preparation for this chapter, I had the parable of weeds on my mind. But as I started writing this sermon, I realized that the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds seemed to have a whole lot in common. Each parable had very similar images. Each parable had the exact same setting. And so I wondered, maybe, if the parable of the weeds was just like a rehashing, a retelling of the parable of the sower. Maybe Jesus used the parable of the weeds to reinforce the lessons that are found in the parable of the sower. But very quickly, I had to abandon that idea. I abandoned it because the parable of the weeds was very, very different in some major ways. For instance, the parable of the weeds shows an enemy of the sower spreading weeds among the sower's grain. But the parable of the sower doesn't have anything like that. There's no such enemy. The parable of the weed says that the sower has servants, but there's no servants in the parable of the sower. It's just the sower and the field. In the parable of the weeds, the sower is talking about harvesting his field and burning up the weeds and gathering them together. But the parable of the sower has nothing like that at all. So I was faced with a minor dilemma where the differences between the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds prove that they were really disconnected, unrelated parables? Or was there a single thread, a single story that ran through both parables? I struggled with that question for a while, and this is what I've come up with. These two parables are related to one another. In fact, the parable of the weeds seems to answer a fundamental question that's found in the parable of the sower. A question that must have been running through the minds of every single person who heard Jesus teach the parable of the sower. And this is what I want to spend our time on today. I want us to see the connection between these two parables. I want to show the concerns Jesus is addressing in each, and I want to understand the hearts of those who heard Jesus teach each of these parables. I want us to see that what Jesus told them is a message for us as well. So if you haven't already... Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, and let's hop in. So I want to start by providing just, just a little context. The very first thing you need to know is that Jesus and the other rabbis of Israel, they loved using parables. But Jesus didn't use parables like the rest of the rabbis. Most rabbis, when they used parables, it was a way of interpreting the Old Testament. But Jesus used parables not as a way to interpret the past, but as a way of explaining what was happening in the present. In the parable of the sower, Jesus tells Israel that the Old Testament promises of God were being fulfilled before their very eyes. The people of Israel were witnessing the coming of God's kingdom. The imagery that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower, this was intentional, and the Jews would have recognized it immediately. This picture of seed time and harvest that's found in this parable was an Old Testament picture for how God would redeem Israel. This was the imagery God used when he explained how he would deliver Israel from oppression. 
So when Jesus began the parable of the sower, and he uses all of the right traditional language that's connected to Israel's liberation, the people who were listening to him must have been on the edge of their seats. They were just waiting for Jesus to start talking about Israel's coming victory. But as Jesus tells the parable, it doesn't sound all that victorious. Some of the seed makes it, but a lot of the seed dies, or it withers, or it's stolen. And what makes this parable strange are the actions of the sower himself. Now, I'm no farmer, but is this the way you're supposed to spread seed? You just walk out into an unprepared field and you start slinging seed around, you're just hoping that it grows? Is that what you do? On the surface, it seems the reason much of the seed fails to grow in the parable of the sower is that the sower himself didn't prepare the ground for the seed. He was just out there slinging seed on rocks and in bushes and in thorns. On the surface, the sower appears careless with how he spreads his seed. But was that the case? Was the sower actually being careless? Had the sower failed to tend the land properly? Did the sower fail to prepare the land for the coming of the seed he now spread among them? But we can answer that with a definitive no. Isaiah shows the tenderness of the sower in his dealings with Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, Isaiah said this, God plucked a vine out of the wilderness. He cleared land for it. He built hedges and walls to protect it. God planted the vine of Israel, intended the vine of Israel. But was the vine of Israel fruitful? No, it was not. God said that the vine of Israel was wild, and that being a wild vine, all it yielded was wild grapes. Because of the rebellion, and the wildness of Israel, God would cut them off from the land and send them into exile. Israel was likened to a vine that was once glorious and fruitful, but now it was just a cut-off stump, almost dead, just barely clinging to life. But even in the midst of such severe judgment, there was still hope for the stump of Israel. God had promised them that out of the stump, new growth would come. A shoot would emerge and grow. And in the coming of the shoot of Jesse, in the coming of Israel's Messiah, the people of Israel would be freed from their sin and oppression. And it's with that hope that the Old Testament closes, with Israel waiting and hoping for the Messiah. But in between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, Israel was conquered by at least five different empires. Rome was just the most recent foreign invader that was in their land. The Jews were a people that were under foreign rule, a people who were under constant subjugation. So as Israel waited for the Messiah to come, they waited as a people who were sure that when the Messiah came, the tyranny of foreign rule would finally come to an end. So when Jesus tells the people that he's the Messiah, when he tells people that the kingdom of God is upon them, and then he begins teaching them about the parable of the sower, the people are hanging on his every word. But soon after he began the parable, the people must have been stunned. Stunned because the parable doesn't show a victorious Israel at all. It says nothing about the overthrow of Roman rule. Much to the contrary. At its heart, the parable of the sower is about the seed of God's kingdom coming to the field of Israel, and many in Israel are unready for it. 
The parable of the sower was about Jesus the Messiah coming to Israel and spreading the seed of his word, about Jesus bringing to Israel what God had always promised, and Israel was unready to receive him when he came. Many in Israel were unready for what Jesus said. They were unwilling to hear what he was teaching because what he taught about God's kingdom didn't match what they had hoped. They thought a parable about God's kingdom would be all about power and strength, all about Israel's victory over the nations. They hoped to hear a parable that showed the enemies of Israel being held to account. Instead, what they got was a parable about seed withering in the sun, about seed that was stolen by birds, seed choked by thorns. Many in Israel were unready for Jesus, unresponsive to the seed of his word, because they felt Jesus failed to answer their most pressing questions. When would Israel's subjugation be at an end? When would God judge the enemies of Israel? When would God judge the evil that swirled around these people on a daily basis? Guys, 2,000 years later, I can sense the church asking the same exact question. When will God judge this broken and sinful creation? How much longer will we endure this sick and twisted world? I know a story that exemplifies this cry for God's justice. It's a story where evil is on full display and clearly deserving of punishment. It's a story where you would swear God would intervene and set things right. But the way God intervened in the story I'm about to tell was so different from what you expected, you never see it coming. In my undergraduate work, I had a professor named Dr. Knight. She was a soft-spoken, intelligent, gentle, lovely lady. To this day, she has influence over my faith in Christ as much as anyone that I know. She loves Jesus as deeply as I've seen anyone love her. And Jesus is so real to her that she takes the gospel into some of the darkest places in the world. Now, Dr. Knight, her pastor, several ladies from her church, they would routinely go to the abortion clinic in Jackson. And they would minister to the ladies that were considering having an abortion. Now, they weren't carrying signs. They weren't yelling, don't don't have that image in your head. Instead, what they would do is they would walk up to the ladies that were about to enter the clinic and they would ask if they could pray with them. Now, most of the women that were walking into the clinic, they either declined or they just ignored them. So oftentimes, Dr. Knight and her friends found themselves kneeling in prayer in the parking lot of the clinic and quietly praying for the ladies as they entered. One day at the clinic, though, it was very hot. Even by Mississippi standards, it was really, really hot. Temperatures were over 110 degrees. And as you know, parking lots have almost no shade, and the pavement gets really, really hot. It was so hot that day that they had to pray in 10-minute rotations. You would go out for 10 minutes and pray. When your turn was up, you would retreat back to what little shade there was. And Dr. Knight's pastor had a big cooler of Gatorade. And there you would kind of recoup. Now, Dr. Knight said they had been there for about an hour, when all of a sudden, a van whipped into the parking lot. The van was dark. She said it felt kind of ominous. The windows were tinted, and it stopped right beside where they were praying. She looked up, and she saw the side of the door open. And to her utter shock and horror, a coven of witches emerged from the van. Five witches, every one of them wearing long black robes, their nails painted black, and around each of their neck hung pentagrams. But what shocked her most was what happened next. 
These five witches got down on their knees beside Dr. Knight, and they began praying too. But their prayers weren't like Dr. Knight's. These five witches began openly praying to Satan. Dr. Knight heard these witches say things like, O Lord Satan, we pray that the blood of these babies continue to flow to your glory. May this place be guarded by your demons, and may you be pleased with the sacrifices made here. Can you imagine these words being said out loud? Dr. Knight was shocked. She was horrified in this tender, sweet, gentle little woman Started getting mad, y'all. <laughs> if these witches were going to yell to Satan, she was going to yell to Jesus. So she started praying out loud too. And it wasn't long before her friends were right beside her on that scalding pavement, every single one of them shouting and praying with Miss Knight. And in this hot abortion cleaning parking lot in Jackson, Mississippi, there was a straight-up spiritual fistfight. The louder the witches prayed, the louder the Christians did. And back and forth it went like this. The 10-minute rotation to help you with your stamina, that was gone. You couldn't have moved them with a bulldozer. They were out there for the, for, the whole, for the long haul. Neither side willing to budge. Neither side refusing to give in. And it went on like this for a while. But then something happened. Dr. Knight said in the middle of one of her satanic prayers, one of the witches just fell over, unconscious. And this sweet, gentle Christ-loving lady shouted, All right, God's striking them dead. (laughs) I get it. But then Dr. Knight said out of the corner of her eye, she saw her pastor running towards them. In his hand was a cup of Gatorade. He went over to this witch who had just been praying to Satan, and he gently lifted her head, and he slowly nursed her back from the brink of death. The witches were stunned. They were confused. Why on earth would these Christians help them? Why on earth would a Christian help their enemy? Dr. Knight said that this action that her pastor took, it took the wind out of the witches' sails, and they began to pack up their stuff and leave. As they were leaving, Dr. Knight said that she saw her pastor just off to the side with the witch he had brought back from the brink of death, praying with her. And then it hit him, then it hit her. If those witches continued on this path of demonic evil, one day soon they would stand before the Lord Jesus himself and be held to account. They would face ultimate judgment. But before that day came, there was a day in a scorching hot parking lot in Jackson, Mississippi, where there was still a chance for repentance. There was still a chance, even for someone as twisted as a witch, to know the Lord Jesus. I think the people of Israel were like Dr. Knight. The wicked and demonic rule of kings and emperors was as plain as day. These rulers took delight in their sin. They took delight in their evil, and it was all around them. But Israel, like Dr. Knight, failed to remember that though the day of judgment may be coming, it has not arrived yet. A day is coming where all wrongs will be set right. But until that day, there is still hope for the sinner. There is still a chance for repentance. Jesus knew the concerns and fears of his people. He knew his people saw the land overflowing with injustice, that they saw the land was full of demonic evil. He knew they were under the boot of illegitimate rulers. He knew how disappointed they were when he finished the parable of the sower. So disappointed because the parable of the sower failed to answer the question, 
What is God going to do about all this evil? I think it, at its heart, the parable of the weeds is Jesus answering that exact question. What is God going to do about all this evil? I think the parable of the weeds is Jesus reassuring his people, reassuring them that he sees their troubles, that he hasn't turned a blind eye, that he is aware of every injustice that's being suffered in this world. And he tells his people, he's like a sower who notices weeds growing next to his wheat That he's a sower who has a plan to deal with each and every single weed. That there is coming a day of harvest where he will personally sort wheat from weeds. But the day of harvest is not yet. The sower knows that uprooting the weeds today would mean uprooting the wheat as well. And for the sake of the wheat that has yet to bloom, the sower says, let them both grow together for now. I'll sort them out later. Israel was making the same mistake Dr. Knight made, the same mistake the servants of the sower made in today's parable. Israel just knew that the Messiah would come and judge every single weed of evil and corruption that he saw. How could he not? But what many in Israel failed to recognize were the weeds of evil were far more pervasive than they thought. Many in Israel failed to recognize that they possessed weeds of evil in their own hearts. Many in Israel that called for judgment failed to recognize how unready they were for the judgment they invoked. Many had no idea just how unready they were for the sower to even begin his harvest. They failed to recognize that the justice they longed to see served to Rome could have been applied to them as well. And I think that is the message of these two parables together. The parable of the sower explains the unready state of many in Israel. And the parable of the weed explains that God delays judgment for the sake of those who are still unready. Brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you that our world is full of injustice, that our world seems to be filled to the brim with weeds. The government seems broken, our leaders seem corrupt, the assault on the family is everywhere you look, the wholesale slaughter of babies in the womb hasn't stopped for almost 50 years. You can't trust the news. You can't trust our schools. There's disease, pestilence, famine, plague. Every time you turn around, there's some new disaster, some new calamity. As I get it, I see it too. But can I tell you, Jesus sees it as well. Jesus sees every last single weed growing in the world today. And you can rest assured that on the day of the harvest, every last single weed will be accounted before. You can take that to the bank. But from this day to that, the weeds will grow alongside the wheat, not because the sower is indifferent, not because the sower doesn't see. No, the sower's day of the harvest has yet to come for the sake of those who find themselves still unready. Today as we speak, somewhere in the world, a person is repenting and turning to Jesus. Somewhere right now, a person is receiving the seed of new life found in Christ. Someone who just yesterday may have been set against Jesus is today called his beloved. And on the day of the harvest, that person will be gathered up as wheat by the sower, no longer counted among the weeds, and the sower will place them in his barn. The sower tarries in his coming. He tarries in his harvest for people like that.
Praise God that he is this patient with us. That he never ceases to call us. He never ceases to draw us to himself. Praise God that today is the day of repentance that we can turn to him and receive the life from him we were meant to have. Praise God that he is not indifferent to the evil you and I see all around us. He sees it too, and he reassures us this day that the days of evil are numbered. Praise God that we have a hope that is this sure, that we worship a God this good. Praise God that he never leaves us or forsakes us, that he came here for us, and that he will return for us, for his coming and for his coming again. Amen.